Acts chapter 16, please. Lewis Berry Chafer, in his book, True Evangelism, offers a generalization of the condition of unsaved men and women and their reaction to the good news of the gospel. And I'd like to share with you what he has to say this morning. He says this, Every soul winner becomes aware, sooner or later, of the fact that the vast company of unsaved people do not realize the seriousness of their lost estate. Nor do they become alarmed, even when the most direct warning and appeal is given to them. They may be normally intelligent and keen to comprehend any opportunity for personal advancement in material or intellectual things. Yet, there is over them a spell of indifference and neglect toward the things that would secure for them any right relation to God. All the provisions of grace with the present and future blessedness of the redeemed are listened to by these people without a reasonable response. They are perhaps sympathetic, warm-hearted and kind, They are full of tenderness toward all human suffering and need. But their sinfulness before God and their imperative need of a Savior are strangely neglected. They lie down to sleep without fear and awaken to a life that is free from thought or obligation toward God. The faithful minister soon learns to his sorrow that his most careful presentation of truth and earnest appeal produces no effect on them. And the question naturally arises, how then can these people be reached with the gospel? How indeed can anyone be reached with the gospel when there is such a spirit of indifference and apathy toward the truths of Scripture? Have you ever tried to talk to someone about Jesus Christ? And it seemed as if they truly understood what you were saying, but they didn't show any kind of desire to respond or any fear of judgment for their sin. If you've talked to anybody very much about the gospel, I would expect that you probably have had that happen. This situation is really not uncommon. And I think that it's becoming more and more common for our neighbors, our friends, and our family members to reject any belief that they find uncomfortable. In other words, I think that we will find that most people do not want to recognize that they are lost in sin and condemned by a holy God. And because they refuse to believe what they do not like, they can insulate themselves from the consequences of the message of the gospel. You see, the gospel can make someone quite uncomfortable. Consider what Peter preached to the Jews in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 3, where he said, God glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered up, And denied in the presence of Pilate. You denied the Holy One and the just. And killed the Prince of Life. 
whom God raised from the dead. Do you suppose that maybe Peter's message was at least slightly offensive to the men to whom it was preached? When Peter accused them of murdering the author of life and denying the holy and righteous one, he wasn't telling them that Jesus loved them and had a wonderful plan for their lives. I say that because that's one very popular method of evangelism today. You need to tell people that Jesus loves them and has a wonderful plan for their lives. Well, Jesus does love them and he has a wonderful plan for their lives. But there's a problem that comes first. And the problem is, well, the gospel is about more than just the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's about how mankind is in desperate need of a Savior because we have rebelled against our Creator. This morning, do you find it offensive when I say that you are a terrible sinner whose every breath is an act worthy of condemnation and eternal hell? If you're not truly a believer, then you may find that message quite difficult to accept. And yet... Everyone who is trusted in Christ by faith will freely admit that we are all that and more. And so, I think probably or possibly the most effective strategy that Satan uses to oppose the work of God in the gospel is to blind men's eyes to the seriousness of their condition. This blindness must be overcome before we can understand the magnitude of our sin and God's incomparable love. Now, what does all that have to do with Acts 16? Well, let's take a look. Because in the the next verses, the next passage of Acts 16, we're going to see how this problem can be overcome. Look at Acts 16 and beginning in verse 6. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out to the city, out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now you might look at that passage and say, What does that have to do with what you've just been talking about? 
Well, there's a lot here that I'd like to try and direct your attention to to explain that. The first thing I'd like you to see is that the Holy Spirit very clearly guided Paul and his missionary team into Macedonia. Paul's ministry so far had been focused on the southern and central portions of modern-day Turkey. And he desired to go to the west coast of Turkey, which was uh, called uh, Asia in the first century, right along the coast of the Aegean Sea. And he also, when that didn't work, he tried to go north to the, the north coast of Turkey on the coast of the Black Sea to an area that was called Bithynia in the first century. But in both cases, the Spirit prevented him from doing so. In verse 6, it says that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit from preaching in Asia. And in verse 7, it says that the Spirit did not permit them to even go into Bithynia. Now many people have speculated about how exactly the Spirit did this. How did He forbid Him from preaching? How did He prevent Him or not refuse to permit Him to go? And the, and, and the truth is we just don't know. Luke does not say exactly how the Spirit spoke to Paul and, and, and told him this. And I think because Luke doesn't say it, it would be unwise for us to try to speculate on any further on that detail. Suffice it to say that somehow the Spirit made it very clear to Paul that he was not to go to Asia and he was not to go to Bithynia. He was not to head west. He was not to head north. He really couldn't go south. He was already in the southern part of Turkey. Going east would have been going back toward Syria where he came from. Now if your geography works out, doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of options left, does it? He's closed off the west. He's closed off the north. There's nowhere south and east is just going back. He doesn't want to go back. He wants to go forward. Paul wants to preach the gospel. What we know for very certain is that the Spirit did not allow him to go to these regions and preach. Now, some people have taken these verses as a lesson for Christians on how we are to seek the Holy Spirit's direction. And I would just like to offer a couple of thoughts on that before we move on. First, I would say this. We don't know exactly how the Holy Spirit revealed His will to Paul in this way. And since we don't know that, we can't really draw any specific conclusions about how the Spirit will reveal His will to us. Understand, if the passage doesn't tell us how the Holy Spirit stopped Paul, how the Holy Spirit directed Paul, then that doesn't really tell us how the Holy Spirit will direct us. Does that make sense? If the, Spirit, if, the, if the Word of God here is silent on how this worked, then we can't really use these verses as a manual to tell us what we should expect from the Holy Spirit in His direction. But the, the second thing I would say is this, that this is the only place in Acts that we have any indication that Paul was led in this way. even this particular situation doesn't seem normal for Paul. In fact, there was a lot of different ways that the Holy Spirit led Paul. Sometimes through direct prophecy. Sometimes through the ministry of the church that he was in, who commissioned him to go. Sometimes through visions, as he sees here. Other times we don't know. The, the, the scripture doesn't say how Paul knew where to go or what to do. The fact is, 
There's, there's really not a whole lot of detail here that would give us an indication of how the Holy Spirit works to reveal His will. Now, all that being said, I don't want to be too quick to dismiss the Spirit's leading altogether here. Because we do know that every Christian has the Spirit of Christ within. And we ought to expect that the Holy Spirit will give us wisdom to follow God's will as it has been revealed to us in Scripture. You see, here's one thing I do know about Paul. He was not interested in pursuing his own agenda. He desired to do the will of God. Period. Because I know that, I don't really, it doesn't really matter to me how the Spirit directed Paul. Because the key was Paul was willing to be led by the Spirit. And so, in whatever way, as we read through Paul's life, in whatever way the Spirit directed him, he was ready for that. Because that's what he wanted. He was able in this context to recognize the Spirit's direction. Paul, don't go to Asia. Paul, don't go to Bithynia. Now, we might then think, well, I guess Paul just sat down. Maybe he sat down on the floor and crossed his legs and just said, fine, I'm not going to move from this spot. And I'm just going to sit here until God shows me what to do. But I think that would be a mistake because that's not what Paul did. It's interesting here. <clears throat> when Paul realized that he couldn't go west, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> when Paul realized he couldn't go west to Ephesus, right? he couldn't go north to Nicaea and Byzantium, he traveled to the only place that the Spirit had not prohibited. There's only one place left, really, that the Spirit had not prohibited Paul to travel. And that was northwest to the city of Troas. And Paul was not sitting around waiting for the Spirit to give him a vision, by the way. He did travel. He traveled the only place the Spirit hadn't prohibited him, to Troas. Why? Because Paul had been called to preach the Gospel. That's what he was called to do, and that was what he was going to do. Because he knew that that was what God had called him to do. And so he wasn't so concerned about where that took place. Okay, if he couldn't go into Asia, couldn't go into Bithynia, fine. Okay, the Spirit rules those places out, fine, he'll go somewhere else. In this case, the city of Troas. Now, while they were there at Troas, we're told that Paul saw a vision. The vision that he saw during the night, and it directed him and his team to travel across the Aegean Sea into Macedonia. As I said, Paul's heart was to preach the gospel to the lost. So when he saw this vision, it impacted him greatly. If anyone desired to hear the truth, Paul would do everything in his power to accommodate that desire. And Paul was confident that this vision was from God. Because the purpose of this vision was to spread the gospel to a region that was previously untouched with the truth of Jesus Christ. No messenger from Satan would encourage Paul to go and preach the gospel. <laughs> and so, 
we consider here the implication of these verses for our own evangelistic efforts, I, I think there's a takeaway for us in this. I don't think the takeaway is that we should expect God to send us a vision telling us where we should go and who we should talk to. Because we have no indication that Paul expected that or sought that at all. And we have no indication that this ever happened to Paul again. But here's what we should take away. We should follow Paul's example. What was Paul doing? He was relying on the Spirit to lead him. Being ready to take advantage of any opportunity that he had to preach the gospel. Even if that wasn't exactly what he had expected it to be. You see, Paul, I believe Paul wanted to go into Asia because the city of Ephesus was really the, the kind of the, hu- the, the, the hub of Asia. And if Paul had been able to go to the city of Ephesus and preach there, he knew that from Ephesus, the gospel would spread throughout the entire region of Asia. And if he went north into the city of Nicaea, and into Byzantium, and he preached there in, in, in the area of Bithynia, Paul knew if I preach in those cities, the gospel is going to spread from there. Those were, were, were centers of commerce and trade within that region. And Paul, that was what Paul wanted. He wanted to be able to go to these major cities, preach the gospel, and then see the gospel spread. And yet, he was willing to go anywhere, even if it wasn't the original place that he had intended where he thought the gospel should go. The Spirit didn't allow him to do that. But Paul was willing. He was ready to follow the Spirit. But here's the other thing. He was also opportunistic. He didn't have the opportunity to go where he planned, but, but he just did whatever he could do then. Okay, if I, can't go east, or if I can't go west, I can't go north, I'll go into Troas. And that's where he went. And so we have this, this sense in Paul that he was, he was ready to grasp any opportunity that came his way to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think that's a, an admirable attitude that we should, should follow, an example that we should follow. To be opportunistic as Christians. When the opportunity comes our way, to be ready to take advantage of it. And, and I think we have, been, we have this instruction in Scripture as well. Keep your finger there in Acts 16 and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And we have something else that the Apostle Paul wrote. What does he say here to young Timothy? I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. What is Paul telling Timothy? Timothy, be ready. Be opportunistic. When the chance comes, preach the Word of God. Be ready anytime, he says. Now you say, okay, wait a second. That's easy because that's a pastor and Paul's telling a pastor to be ready to preach. So pastors need to be ready to preach. Okay, I'll grant you that. Maybe that's a better way for us to understand that passage. My job, I better be ready to preach at a moment's notice, right? Okay, I'll give you that. But, but, hold on, there's another passage of Scripture I want you to look at. First Peter. First Peter chapter 3. I don't think it's just pastors. 
I don't think it's just pastors who need to be ready to proclaim the truth of the Word of God. I think it's all believers. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. Peter here is writing to Christians. The Christians who have been scattered abroad. What does Peter say? 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. He says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Peter says, Listen, Christian, you need to be ready. Now, in the context of 1 Peter 3, part of being ready means living a life of holiness. Living a life that is right before God so that at any moment in time we are prepared. We are ready. So that our lifestyle will match our words. But we need to be ready with our words too. We need to be prepared. We need to be opportunistic. Because we don't know. We don't know what opportunities we may find this afternoon to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone. To talk about the love of Christ. To talk about the sin that offends a holy God. We need to be ready. And we need to trust the Spirit to guide us as witnesses. That's what Paul was doing and I think that's a good example for us. You see, the reason that this passage, the reason I include this passage in today's message is that we see that from the very beginning the Holy Spirit was in this. The Holy Spirit's work and power and leading and guidance is is all throughout the ministry of evangelism. The ministry of the gospel. And we as Christians, each of us has a responsibility. We've all been called to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. And if we're going to do that, we need the Holy Spirit. We need His guidance and His leading. We need to be ready, prepared, because we don't know what He might, what opportunity He might bring to us today. We need to be ready for it. And so what do we see? Well, Paul and his ministry companions, they received this vision They were convinced because of this vision that God wanted them to go to Macedonia and preach the gospel. So what did they do? They got on a ship there in Troas. And they sailed to Neapolis, which is near Philippi. Look at uh, verse 10, and we'll read through here. Again, verse 10, he says, Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, the next day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. You see, this, this was their, their response. They, they received this vision and immediately they, they sought to go in obedience to this calling from God. Now you may have noticed there in verse 10 how the, the pronoun shifts. 
Maybe you don't pay close enough, that close of attention to notice which pronouns get used. Okay? But when we read Scripture, we need to pay very close attention to what it says. There's something interesting here. Luke says there in verse 10, after he, that's Paul, had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. Well, that's interesting. The first time in this book that we have a first person, uh, personal pronoun used by the author. What does that suggest? Well, it suggests that Luke had joined the team in Troas. That Luke traveled with them from Troas to Philippi. This, by the way, is the first of four, uh, four we sections. That's how they're identified. They're called, this is very technical language here, they're called we sections of the book of Acts. Okay? There are four places in the book of Acts where the pronoun we is used to describe the travels of the Apostle Paul in the ministry. Those four passages indicate to us that Luke was with Paul on those occasions. Those were times when Luke was with him personally. He was an eyewitness of these things. This, of course, introduces to us another, another character whom we know very little about. And today I'm not going to dwell very much on him. But he does mention the city they went to, which is important, the city of Philippi. He says here that it is a, the foremost city. Um, the first city is the way that it's described there of Macedonia. And he calls it a colony. That's interesting, and actually that's very important that he calls it a colony, because a colony was a city that was founded and organized by the Roman government. And generally speaking, that included having an outpost for the Roman military there. Colonies were almost always populated by retired uh, service members from the Roman military. Men who had earned their citizenship by fighting in the military. And so they would be Roman citizens. It would have been a very wealthy city. It was a coastal town, so it was a center of commerce. Uh, colonies were exempt from taxes. So this was a very desirable place to live and be a Roman citizen. But it was really thoroughly an entirely Roman city. This, by the way, really is an ideal place for Paul to begin his ministry in Macedonia. Same, the, the same comment that I made earlier about the, about the city of Ephesus being the center of Asia. Well, Philippi here is, is described as the first or the primary city uh, in Macedonia. This particular area of Macedonia, Philippi was, was an important city. And so from Philippi as a central location, the gospel could go out and spread to many of the smaller towns and cities around there. This was a model that Paul seemed to prefer in his ministry. I think that's important, by the way, just, to, just as a side note here. Not completely a side note, but <clears throat> you realize that Paul was not interested in planting churches by himself. Paul's ministry and his ministry model was that he would go into a city, he would preach the gospel, he would form a church, and then the people of that church would take the gospel from that city outward. And they would spread the gospel then from that central location out like the spokes of a wheel. Paul's ministry was almost always focused on primary centers of trade and commerce. Cities that would be, that would be the, the, 
the focal point of the region so that he could preach the gospel there and the people from there would go out. Some because some of the converts that he would make would not be people from those cities, but instead would be merchants and people who were maybe only stayed in those cities for a period of time before moving on to somewhere else. And when they moved on, they would take the gospel with them. That was the point of his ministry. And so that's what he does here. This is an important thing, but it's important because Paul understood that the ministry of the gospel was not for one man alone. The ministry of the gospel was for all believers. And his ministry in starting the church and in directing that church was to build up the believers so that they could go out and preach the gospel. And that's the model of evangelism that Paul practiced. It's the model that he taught in the epistles. And I think it's the model that we should follow today. There's not one person here in this church who should go out and tell people about Christ. That every one of us who is a part of this church ought to be sharing the gospel as we have opportunity. Ought to be taking the opportunities the Holy Spirit gives us to preach the word of God. To share the gospel. To spread the truth of Jesus Christ. Now there was another model that Paul had. And that was that he, when he first went to a city, would look for the synagogue. And he would worship in the synagogue on a Sabbath day with the Jews. And then he would talk to them and preach to them about Jesus Christ. And of course, that makes perfect sense. Jesus Christ was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. And so any Jew who had any sort of faithful Jewish upbringing would know what the Old Testament scripture said about the Messiah. And Paul could go there, he could talk with them, and as he proclaimed Jesus Christ as the Messiah, he already had a a foundation of biblical truth to work from. They already knew the Bible. All he had to do was point them to the scriptures about the Messiah and then explain to them how those scriptures were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And tell them, you already believe in the Messiah, now just believe in who he is and be saved. So that was the method that Paul used every time he'd go to a new city. And so what does he do when he gets to Philippi? Well, he does the same thing. And you say, well, I didn't, we read that and I didn't see anything about a synagogue. I did see something about a river and some prayer and whatnot. Well, okay. There's no synagogue mentioned. In fact, in all likelihood, what this indicates to us is that Philippi probably didn't have very many Jews living there. See, it required 10 Jewish men to form a synagogue. Women didn't count. You could have ten women, they wouldn't add up to one man to make a Jewish synagogue. Okay? I'm not saying that because they're less, I'm just saying that that was the way that they viewed it. Okay? You had to have ten Jewish men to make a synagogue. It didn't matter how many Jewish women you had, it had to be men. Well, the indication here is that there was a group of women who gathered together on the Sabbath day to pray. And they gathered outside the city by a river. And then, of course, there's several reasons for that. Probably partly because the river would make sense because part of their worship and prayer, the preparation for their worship, involved ritual cleansing, washing of themselves. So that river would be a natural place for them to do that. Uh, also, it was not, uh, it, probably not uncommon in a Roman city where Jews and the Jewish faith would be seen as kind of a, a strange cult to them, that they would not be allowed to do that inside the city. They would have to gather outside the city somewhere. And so what does Paul do? Well, he goes to 
Whatever the gathering place is, in this case, not a synagogue, but he goes to this riverside outside the city. And what does he find there? He finds a group of women who come together on the Sabbath to pray. I, th- I just think it's fascinating. The very first people, the very first people to hear the gospel in Macedonia were women, not men. Maybe, and I could be wrong about this, I suppose, but maybe Christianity is not nearly as chauvinistic as some people would like us to believe. The very first people that Paul goes and preaches the gospel to is not, it's not men, it's women. Maybe God cares. Maybe it doesn't matter to God whether it's men or women who come to Christ. Maybe radical idea, right? Maybe we're all equal before him. Surprise. So what does Paul do? He goes and he preaches. He preaches the gospel to these women. He sat down and he talked to them. We see that there in verse 13. On the Sabbath day, we went out to their city, to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who were there. There was a a certain woman there, and Luke says here that her name was Lydia. He says she heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. Lydia is an interesting character here. Luke describes her as a seller of purple. He says she was from the city of Thyatira, which, by the way, Thyatira is back in Asia, the place where Paul wasn't allowed to go preach. That's where she's from, which I think is kind of interesting. The Spirit said, no, 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 don't go to Asia and preach. Go over to Macedonia, but in Macedonia you're going to meet someone from Asia, you're going to preach to them. Okay. But Paul wanted to preach in Asia, and the Spirit said, no, but I'll lead you to an Asian. Okay. You can preach to. All right. So he preaches, and he shares the gospel with this woman. But we're also told that she was a seller of purple. The region there uh, in Thyatira was known for its purple dyes. Now, there were two ways that they made purple dyes back in this time. One was from the shell of a, uh, of a particular shellfish. Um, and that was primarily made, my understanding is, in Lebanon near Phoenicia. Uh, but in this area of Thyatira, there was a root in the ground that they would, they would derive a purple dye from. And it was very difficult to get. It was very rare. It was very, I mean, you could only get a small amount from these roots. So it was something that was precious, that was very expensive. So what we know about Lydia, if she was a seller of purple, she probably was a fairly wealthy merchant. She may have been a widow. There's no mention here of a husband anywhere in this passage or anywhere in Scripture. She seemed to be in charge of her entire household. That's the way that it's described in this passage. And so this is a woman that Paul meets, and he, he, he shares the gospel with her. But what I think is most interesting, the most interesting thing about Lydia that we see in this passage is how Lydia responded to Paul's preaching. Remember that we asked the question earlier, how can anyone be reached with the gospel when there is such a spirit of indifference and apathy toward the truths of Scripture? Now, this is where this applies. This is where this comes in here in this passage. This, by the way, this question is really the key to our entire mission as witnesses for Jesus Christ. Can we open the eyes of the blind? Can we convict a sinner of his sin? Can we give life to one who is dead? I see a couple of you got it out there. The simple answer is no. But this is what we read about Lydia. I love this this sentence. 
the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. You see, it was not the apostle's mastery of speech that won Lydia to Christ. It wasn't his prowess in logic and argumentation that convinced her that the gospel was true. You see, we value those things. And we tend to think that if, if we just could, could maybe express ourselves better, if we just were more comfortable, maybe if we had the gift of evangelism, then when we talk to people, they would listen. Maybe if we just kind of had a, a, a polished method that we could go through, a simple, you know, here's, their, here's A, B, C, done. Okay? Maybe we just need a real simple plan, something we can go through easily and, and, and just, you know, check it off and they're done and they'll listen and they'll, they'll accept Christ and I will, it'll work. And maybe that's, maybe we use that as an excuse and say, well, I, I, I'm not very good at speaking. I'm, I'm not very good at explaining things. Uh, I'm not gifted in talking with people. But none of those things were what convinced Lydia. None of those things. This is our model. This passage of Scripture gives us our model. We must faithfully proclaim the truth of the Gospel. But God alone can open the hearts of those who hear us so that they may respond positively to the gospel. Well, there certainly is some value in study and preparation. I already told you we need to be prepared. It's good for us to... There's nothing wrong with us being involved in what we might call pre-evangelism. That is, responding to the objections and questions raised by skeptics. There's nothing wrong with that. But we must never forget that any opportunity we have to witness for Christ is a spiritual battle requiring spiritual weaponry. Only the Holy Spirit of God can open blind eyes, convict the sinner of his sinfulness in the coming judgment, and give life to the dead. Yeah, we don't have time to go into that anymore. Sorry. I was thinking there's a lot of other there's a lot of things that we see in scripture that are tools. What are what is our spiritual weaponry? That's a, maybe a, a, a message for another day. I think Ephesians six, Second um, Corinthians ten, passages where it talks about our spiritual warfare. Okay. That's a conversation for another day. Understand this, though. The Holy Spirit is the one who can do this. He is the one who can open the hearts of lost men and women to receive the truth of the Gospel. And if He does not, it doesn't matter how good we can argue. It doesn't matter how, how, how articulate we are. It doesn't matter how convincing we can be. Because the eyes of those who are lost are blind. To the gospel. And we can't remove the blindness. Only the Holy Spirit can. And that's what he did here. Paul sat down and he taught them about Jesus Christ. But God opened Lydia's heart to receive it.
And here's a question for you. Just how can we identify when the Holy Spirit has opened the heart of a lost man or woman to give attention to the gospel? How can we tell? Well, Lydia provides us an example of that as well. Because here's what we know. Lydia responded immediately with obedience to their message. They say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, look at what it says. The end of verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized. Notice what happened. Paul preached the gospel. The Lord opened her heart to understand, to heed, to give attention to the gospel. And she and her household obeyed the message and were baptized. Now this is important for us to understand because God's word must be heeded and obeyed in order for it to take effect. I'm not saying that Lydia's baptism was a means of grace and salvation. The apostles had clearly ruled that out in Acts chapter 15 when they affirmed that Gentiles were saved by hearing the word of God and believing. Peter makes that very, very clear that that's exactly what happened in Cornelius' house. They heard and they believed and they were saved, period. They didn't even have an opportunity to cry out. To confess anything. It happened in their hearts. And God knew it. And so he sent the Spirit in response. And Peter says, that's proof that, it's, that, that salvation is by grace through faith alone. But, how are we to know that someone has believed? How are we to know that a person has heard the gospel, that the Spirit has moved in their heart, and that they have believed Christ? Well, the New Testament gives us a sign. The New Testament sign to the church is baptism. By the way, this is the first instance, there in verse 15, of what we call a household baptism. There's another instance later in the same chapter. We're going to talk about that next week. Some people have concluded that this is a a positive reference, proof even, for infant baptism. Because they say, well, the household must have included children as well as adults. So when it says that her and her household were baptized, that means that that they baptized the babies. And there we go. There's proof. Now we should practice infant baptism. And that's how they argue a passage like this. Of course, I would say that any conclusion like that is speculative at best. Because Luke doesn't record any of the details about who was included in the baptism, other than saying that the whole house, that Lydia and her household were baptized. But in fact, I would go even beyond that. Not only does Luke not record the details of who was included in baptism, but infant baptism, if that were really what he was suggesting here, would actually obscure the point that's being made. It would actually be the opposite of what Luke is trying to tell us. In fact, Lydia's own words here in verse 15 indicate to us what baptism meant. Look at what she said. 
See, she, we find that she and her household were baptized. And what did she do? She begged Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. What did she beg them? If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. To what, in her own words, how did she view baptism? What was she saying was the significance of her baptism? It was this. It was a sign of her faithfulness to the Lord. Of her commitment and obedience to the Lord. She and her household were baptized and she immediately said, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord. If you have found me to be obedient, how in the world would they have found her to be obedient? They just met her. How in the world would they have judged her to be faithful to the Lord? They just met her one way and one way only. After she believed they were there by the river, what did they do? They went to the river and they baptized her. Why? Because it was proof. It was a sign. Very clearly given that she was saying, I am a believer in Jesus Christ and I am obedient to the Lord. Faithful to the Lord. She she didn't see baptism as a means of salvation. She saw it as proof of her commitment to be faithful, to be obedient to the Lord. And so she pled with the missionaries to stay with her. And I, the reason it says she begged, I imagine that they probably refused at first. Because Paul's custom was to not make himself dependent on the church that he was ministering to. On purpose, he says, to the Corinthian church, he refused to take anything from them. Because he didn't want anyone to suggest that he was doing that ministry just for personal gain. So Paul refused. So I would say he probably said no. But she begged. She pleaded with them. Why? Because she was determined. Because she was committed and she was faithful. She loved the Lord and she wanted to show her hospitality. To prove the legitimacy of her faith here. I think in Lydia here we see the full scope of the Holy Spirit's ministry to the unsaved person. We see the Holy Spirit removing the veil which produces that indifference in an unsaved person's heart. We see the Holy Spirit convicting of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, as Jesus promised in the book of John. And we see the Holy Spirit raising Lydia to new life in Christ. And all of this happens in a moment's time. As Paul preaches the Gospel. And the Spirit works in her heart. You may be like Lydia was before the Spirit opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Until now, you may have heard the gospel preached many times. Maybe you've always had an excuse. A reason why it didn't really fit because you considered yourself a good person. Maybe you even considered yourself a Christian. But you've never really recognized that you are an offensive creature who has refused the rightful authority of your maker. 
and that he rightly condemns you for your rebellion. No amount of good works can overcome such an indictment. We don't excuse a convicted murderer because of some good things that he's done along the way. His crime makes him guilty. When he's convicted and sentenced, and that's exactly what's happened, Scripture says, Jesus said in John 3, that those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. No amount of good works can overcome that indictment. You have no hope in yourself of escaping your fate. But the Scriptures bring what can only be described as good news. That's why, they're called, that's why it's called the Gospel. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, died for your sins so that you could be completely forgiven. You can't earn it. It's not how forgiveness works. God has promised to forgive all your sins and restore you as His son or daughter if you will trust in Christ by faith. Today, you can turn from your own way and trust Him as your Savior and be saved. This is seriously good news. But what about those of you who have already crossed that bridge? You've admitted your sinful and helpless condition. You've cried out to God for mercy and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And you are truly saved. You're forgiven. You're born again. What role does baptism play in all of this? Well, it's quite simple. If you have trusted in Christ, then you ought to be baptized as an outward sign of your faith. And as an indication of your faithfulness to the Lord. You see, we don't baptize infants because they cannot express faith in Christ for salvation. And so infant baptism is contrary to the meaning and purpose of water baptism in the Bible. Instead, we practice believer's baptism because it's consistent with the teaching of Scripture. Baptism is a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. And so this morning, if you would like to be baptized, as Lydia was, as her household was, as a sign of your genuine faith in Christ, and your commitment to faithfulness before the Lord, then I would encourage you to come and talk with me. So we can prepare for this important step of obedience. I don't think we'll take you out to the lake and dunk you in right now. It's a little bit chilly. Just saying. I forget though where I read it. Just as a side note, uh, I, you know, I think it was that was a was an article written uh, about the Baptist Church in Lebanon, Wisconsin, where my folks were. There's no Baptist Church there anymore. It's gone. But it used to be there years ago. And in this article, it was kind of talking about the history of the church, and they had it was telling about a baptism service they had, where they went down to the river and baptized people in January. And they had to break through the ice. Ten people were baptized. It was a big celebration. A big, you know. So, just saying, I think that was back in the 40s, uh, 1940s. So I'm just, you know, we have a nice warm baptistry here, so you don't have to worry about that. I'm just saying. Listen, the, the, uh, the truth is, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you've never been baptized, that's an important thing for you to do. 
It's an important sign for you to demonstrate the reality that you are truly a child of God and that you are committed to obeying Him and serving Him. But then there's a final element to all of this. For those of you who've been saved by faith, those of you who've been immersed as a believer in believer's baptism, and it's this, that each one of us has been called to be a witness for Christ. I've already mentioned this. But here's a question for you to consider this morning. How are you doing in your mission? Have you become discouraged because the, the spiritual apathy of those to whom you've given the gospel? Have you, have you tried to talk to someone recently and just, they just didn't seem to care? They just didn't seem interested in hearing about Jesus, hearing about your faith in Christ? Have you gotten discouraged? Don't give up. Don't give up. Remember that it is not our, in your power and it is not in my power to open the hearts of the lost to heed the truth. That is something we cannot do. We need to rely on the Spirit. But here's the thing. We need to rely on the Spirit to lead us to people that He's working on. Maybe we need to pray and ask the Lord today to lead us to somebody that He's working on. I mean, I'm not, we're not opposed to sharing the Gospel with anybody. But God, lead, lead me to somebody who, who You're working on who you're working in their heart and you're taking away that veil of blindness so that when I share the gospel, they'll listen and they'll receive it. We need to rely on the Spirit to lead us to them. We need to follow His leading. We need to look for opportunities to preach the gospel. But then we need to trust Him to do the work that we can't do. The spiritual work in the hearts of those who need, to, who need to hear about Christ. And of course, this is a good reminder for us. If you go out this week and you share the gospel with someone and they listen and they're receptive to it, maybe they trust Christ, maybe they don't, but they're at least interested and they, and they listen and, they, and, and, and they're, they seem to be open spiritually to hearing the truth. Be sure to give God the glory. And the praise. Because that's an indication that He has done something that you couldn't do. At that moment when you were sharing the gospel, He was opening the heart of that person to heed it, to listen to it, to pay attention to it. So we need to thank Him for that. Give Him glory. We need to remember what Paul said in Galatians 6 and verse 9. Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Let's close with prayer this morning.